Hi, I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. Hello everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Pilot House. Sarah and I are going to make this entire episode over the course of one weekend. Together, I'm at Sarah's apartment and we're going to watch Deadwood. Yes, uh, we had planned on watching Deadwood. We've been talking about doing it for a while and we had originally planned to do it in season three and then we found out the movie is coming out and we decided to chase that algorithm so. and <laughs> shamelessly release an episode about Deadwood while everyone's talking about the movie. Sorry and also you're welcome. Yeah, if you're just joining us because of the algorithm, uh, this welcome. is a show where we watch the very first episode of a series, generally one we've never watched before, and then talk about where we think the show is going. Yeah. I watched the pilot of Deadwood long time ago. Sarah has never seen it. Okay. So, yeah, so let's you... get into this. Sarah, what do we know about Deadwood? I have definitely never seen even like clips or anything of it. All I know about it is it is set in the Old West. There's a lot of cussing, um, and it's very dirty. I heard an interview with Stephen Tobolowsky where he talked about being on the show. I get the impression he's not a he's he was like a recurring character, but he's maybe not main cast. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm gonna get to see him in the pilot because he's delightful. Like we can all agree he's great. But he he told some stories about it, and most of what I know about the show is based on his stories about it, which are that apparently the director was quite a character and uh, or the showrunner and. Uh, made them do weird things sometimes that were very annoying because he had to get that like awesome shot or something, um, uh, and and yeah, like never let their costumes be washed because he wanted the like dirtiness to look real and yeah, things like that. I've heard these stories. Other than that, I know nothing about the plot. I don't know if it's about what what kind of characters it's about. Who I uh, think isn't Ian McShane. Ian McShane is in it. Yes, I just found that out recently. I didn't know that before. Yeah, that's a, that's a recent acquisition of information. Ian McShane and Timothy Oliphant. Yes, right. That's are right. like mm -hmm. the two I knew that. kind of main dudes. I so I I did full disclosure. I did watch the pilot of this years ago. The show debuted in two thousand three ish. Okay, that sounds about and right. That's like two thousand four or five. I rented the first DVD of this from like Blockbuster or something like that. And the, from what now? <laughs> there was this place called Blockbuster. Never heard of it. Captain Marvel fell through the ceiling. It was kind of a big deal. Oh, that place. Okay, I'm caught up. Uh, and I don't really remember a whole lot about it, except it was the first time I'd heard, like, people say cocksucker. <gasps> and it felt like like a natural thing for them to say. <laughs> yeah. It like, didn't... I should say... if. People who were not Joe Pesci saying <laughs> cocksucker, and it felt natural. I, and I, I, that is something that I've heard about the show, that it like the cursing is very naturalistic in a way that mm. like you know sometimes a writer is like writing people just like screaming cusses over and over again, and it's like okay, but the actor doesn't really maybe yeah. sell it. Yeah. Whereas I I I wonder if a lot of the dialogue in this was like somewhat improvised or something like that to give it that realistic feel yeah i feel like that might have been part of the stories i've heard that there was a certain amount of like ad-libbing and sort of trying to catch the moment or yeah. whatever 
that, that kind of thing about it is something I vaguely have heard through osmosis. But honestly, I know very little about this show other than... Why did you not watch... I'm sorry, I interrupted in the middle of the sentence. But why didn't you watch any more? Uh, you paid. You probably paid like Because you had to pay $3. like $3 per disc. And I was in high school. and. But what, the first disc only had the pilot? Uh, No, but it was just like... It was a kind of thing where I would get a pile of stuff... And I think I also had, like, I was burning through Stargate SG-1 at the time. So okay. there was other stuff that just compelled me more. All right. I and then suddenly child, it was Sarah. time to return it, and you were like, ah, oh, damn. When, when I was a there. child, I thought as a child. I watched TV as a child. <laughs> I listened to grown men call each other cocksuckers as a child. Anyway, <laughs> let's go find out how much of this is any in any way remotely correct. Yeah, let's go watch Deadwood. <laughs> Pew, 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 cowboys. Nailed it. Yeah. You told me there was going to be a warning. The HBO gives you a warning, like, heads up, boobies going to happen. And then there was no warning, but there were boobies. I'm just saying. So, yeah, they they kind of did come out of nowhere, like, rather right suddenly. Right Uh... It's when you watch HBO end. programs on HBO, this little like da 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 chime plays, and it shows like the advisories for the upcoming episode. There was no such thing for this. Yeah, which I assume got removed for when it gets put on, like, because they don't show you that when you watch it on DVD, and so I'm assuming that whatever Netflix is also Amazon is way. streaming. Oh yeah, that's right. We watched it on Amazon. Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. <sighs> Anyway, this is not how we normally start an episode. Are we doing it, though? Are we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Okay, fine. We just watched The Ballad of Deadwood on HBO. Uh, we didn't watch it on HBO. Which aired on HBO from 2004 to 2006. Three seasons. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, has the TV movie, which is, I think, coming out this week. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but that that's the sum total of, of Deadwood. Yeah, that's all saying. there is. We're establishing... There's a little set set in the scene here. So, we have to start by addressing mm-hmm. how wrong were we? So, obviously, you had seen the pilot before, and even though it had been a very, very long time, you didn't remember any details, you, always, you also didn't misremember anything. No, although I will say that, like, my overall impressions of what was going on were that it was a lot... That it was very slow moving. I didn't really address that up in the what we know, but I remember it as being very slow moving. And my impression of this just now is that it flew by. Yeah. I was riveted. Stuff's happening every second. Yeah. But there's a lot of sort of people talking and kind of establishing things that if you kind of weren't really following, if you're following more for the action than the dialogue, then Mm -hmm. it would seem very slow, I would imagine. Yeah. As a teenager who was maybe just like, all right, guns and boobies, guns and boobies. Yeah. I'm assuming that's what you sounded like when you were that, in high school. That is a perfect spot on <laughs> impression of me at age 14. Tiny strangely. At any rate, in what we talked about in the what we know, mm-hmm. we didn't say anything that was incorrect. No. No, it definitely takes place in the black and white times. <laughs> It takes place in the sweet outfit old timey days, although not in a sweet outfit old timey town. No. Most people were not wearing sweet outfits. We got about two sweet outfits. I'm going to say three. Extend it to three. I'd say the dude, uh, uh, Montana. 
mm-hmm. and and well, the Hickok. I think that was it. That was no. There was there was nothing. There was nothing I said. I there were certainly a lot of things I didn't know. I just want to say that they said cocksucker so many times. Yeah, was I mean, so right. That I expected. I did not know that. Uh, well, Bill Hickok was a character. Although, as soon as the episode started, I remembered somebody mentioning that Calamity Jane was a character. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Oh, that's right." I don't think I knew that any characters were historical. Except for that random bit right. of information that only checked off in my brain when I when I saw her, but you also just told me, and I wish we'd gotten my reaction on Mike. But between watching it now, you mentioned that Al Swearingen is also the main character. Now I had heard that name before. Uh-huh. I knew that was the name of a character, even a main character, on the show, but I for some reason didn't mention it in the what we know, just because we don't say every little thing that crosses our mind. Yeah. Oh. Every time. I, I I, think my understanding of of it from sort of my more bird's eye uh, view of having read a lot of American history is that how Al Swearingen is portrayed and used in the show, there is a lot of liberty being taken with the portrayal. You know, it's, it's more sure. of a historical fiction portrayal, whereas it's my understanding that uh, Bill Hickok's portrayal in the show is... is pretty true to they were because he's more famous a more famous real person yeah they were trying to be more true because more people would probably get angry if you misrepresent wild the hickok than if you misrepresent elsewhere in jen who probably less fewer people knew who he was prior to deadwood becoming a thing right i've certainly i'm pretty sure i've never heard his name outside of people talking about deadwood so yeah um yeah i i think that was the only thing that surprised me was that there were characters that were real people Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that kind of made me go, oh. I also, I don't think, I did not know that it was a, um, like a, like a gold prospecting town. Yeah. I didn't know that gold prospecting was a big part. I didn't know it was a gold rush story. That's, that was a part that I went, oh, okay. It's gonna be some gold stuff. Make perfect sense. I just, in my brain, I was just picturing kind of a generic western setting. Which, I mean, certainly gold, painting for gold is one of the the tropes of that world. Indeed it is. And yet I, I don't expect it for some reason. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. I have our one sentence synopsis. Oh, did you write one? Can I take a crack at it? Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I was just realizing that normally I type one up and I didn't this time. Please go. Go for the gold. Uh, uh. Uh. <laughs> in the hopes of striking it rich in the town of Deadwood... North Dakota? South Dakota. Shit. Okay, hang on a second. In the hopes of striking it rich, various misfits and odd folk from all over the world converge on the town of Deadwood, South Dakota, which is under the control of boss Al Swearingen. How do you think I did, Sarah? Well, uh, that was a very broad one. I think I would have mentioned the marshal. For some reason, I can't remember. Bullock? Bullock. Yeah. I keep thinking of it in Montana, because that's what Hickard calls him in the last... Right. Or one of the last scenes. Anyway. Uh, no, that's good. That works. We do it like those Netflix one-sentence synopsises. Former Marshall Bullock opens a hardware store. Yeah. It's like, that, has, that is not really selling it. There, there was a whole... Uh, this is a tangent, but... There's a whole run of DS9 episodes where, for some reason, the... The episode synopsis uh-huh. is a description of the cold open rather than like 
this is the one where thing happens. Right. It's like, it's like Quark sees a woman he recognizes from his past. And sometimes that has nothing to do with the rest of the plot of the episode. But it's like, it just describes the, the first scene. Anyway, back to Deadwood. <laughs> back to the old timey days. All right. So shall we move on into our recap of the episode? Let's do it. We start uh, in Montana. Mm-hmm. Where uh, Timothy Oliphant, mm. looking delightful, but sort of like his face knows what cell phones are. <laughs> I can't remember where we heard that originally, but that's our go-to for when someone doesn't look right in period pieces now. I think it was just a tweet. Somebody tweeted. I think it's like, a tweet about Ben Affleck in yeah, a period movie. Yeah, Ben Affleck. Oh, I think it was maybe about him in um, Shakespeare in Love. His face looks like it knows what cell phones are. Anyway, <laughs> Timothy Oliphant has a little bit of that going on, but he's doing a great job. He's very nice to look at. Mm-hmm. And he is just sort of wrapping up his duties as the marshal of some town in Montana because he's moving to Deadwood to be, open up a hardware store with a, with his buddy. His buddy Saul. His buddy Saul. Saul Star. And uh, it's a real exciting moment where he's, there's a guy who's like, I stole a horse, but I was going to go to Deadwood too. Is it true there's no law in Deadwood? And they established that it's on quote-unquote Indian land. Yeah. And there's, apparently it's quite lawless out there. And they don't really, uh, we don't learn yet why uh, Bullock wants to leave Montana and uh, head to Deadwood. But there's a very dramatic scene in which the guy whose horse got stolen comes and is like, I'm gonna shoot the guy. And he's like, nope, I'm gonna hang him because that is what we do in law times. And I am a lawman and you called me in on this, so now I'm gonna do the thing. And is probably slightly more humane than whatever yeah, angry he, angry drunk guy was gonna do. It's it's kind of implied that angry drunk guy and his friends want to like lynch the guy or some sort of citizen justice kind of thing. Yeah. And by stepping in and hanging the guy himself right there in front of the guys, mm. he both preserves the rule of law and also like dip, like. It's just like, I I don't remember that from the first time I watched it as a kid, but it is such a shocking thing for this character. Like, we learned so much about this man in that moment because the guy in the jail cell is like, I can get you all this money if you let me out. Like, let's partner up. And he's like, no. Yeah. Like, you're going to hang. Yeah. And he still has like the, he gives the guy the dignity of letting the guy say his last words to yeah. pass on to his sister and everything. And he keeps prompting him. It's interesting. The guy says, all right, what do you, he's, my, oh, come on. My sister was going to be here tomorrow. And he's like, well, you're getting hanged tonight. So tell me what you want us to yeah. tell your sister. And he says something and he goes, and what else? Mm-hmm. And what else? He says it like three or four different yeah. times. Keeps prompting the guy, which I think was partially to get his full while he was kind of freaking out, get him uh-huh. to say more. And I think partially was to humanize him yeah. in the face of this mob that wanted to lynch him or whatever. Yeah. I, I felt like that was part of it, that he was, because he starts talking about his son and he's like, give my son my boots and tell him his daddy loved him and he's forgiven in the eyes of the Lord or something like that. I feel like it was humanizing and sort of... Take the wind out of their sails? Yeah, kind of. I clips their wings i can only think of figures of speech but there's like a dictionary word i'm trying to think of anyway if you know a dictionary word i'm grasping for please tweet it at pilot house pod uh the point is it takes the 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 fight out of him 
Yeah, it really it really kills the momentum of the moment. Yeah. Which I think again, like he's the uh Marshall Bullock, he's so level headed yeah. in that scene in the face of like twelve dudes with guns. Yeah. Well and he's he's literally about to leave for Deadwood. His partner is on their wagon with all their stuff they're gonna take to sell for their hardware store. He's sitting right there with a with a shotgun, like to yeah. to to give him some cover. Like it's they are about to leave town. He says of the mob, of the assembled mob, he yeah. says, who's going to deliver his final words to his sister tomorrow? And the, the guy leading the mob is like, uh, trying to like grasp yeah. onto his control of the situation. It's like, now why don't you move? And one of the guys is like, oh, hell, I'll do it. And he steps forward to take, I guess, what, it's a piece of paper, presumably uh, Marshall Bullock has just written out right. this guy's final words. Mm-hmm. Kind of seemed like a short period of time to write everything that guy just said, but whatever. He he gives it to the guy with his badge. Yeah. Which I was like, is he saying, like, you're the sh- marshal now? Or is he just saying, I'm also passing this on to you because you're going to have to give it to whoever becomes the new marshal. It seems very informal. It, <laughs> the passing of the, of the badge. The impression I got was that he was hanging the guy in the morning and then he would leave as soon as the guy was hung as that was his last official hanged. duty. As soon as he was hanged. Hanged. Hunged. Hung, hung means something different. Sweetie. Also, I, I just want to throw in here, we're talking about a guy about to be executed for stealing a horse, which seems extreme unless you think about the fact that in the in the West in those days, if you took someone's horse, you took their transportation, and often that put them in a place where they were farther away from water than they could reasonably walk to, and they would generally die. Point. So That's stealing someone's horse was tantamount to murdering them. It was it was it was like intentional. In certain situations, yes. Yeah. Probably not in this situation. I don't think that guy at the at the front of no. the mob. He probably owned more than one horse. But they. But, I did know this. I didn't think about that aspect, but I did know the fact that they used to take stealing horses very seriously. It's also. I mean, it's a, it's a, a incredibly valuable thing. Yes. In those days too, and like, I I I get it. We can let it be a thing that the Wild West took horse stealing very seriously. I keep saying the Wild West. It's we're not in the Wild West yet. We get to South Dakota. That's the whole... speaking of which. Wild down in the south. So Bullock and Soul Star yeah. ride out of town. Right out of town. Then it cuts to a wagon train heading into Deadwood. Mm-hmm. And in the wagon train are. Calamity Jane, Wild Bill Hickok, and Wild Bill's friend, Charlie. Yeah, I didn't get his name during the episode. A lot of characters whose names I didn't get. Mostly, I only know Saul's last name because I looked at the IMDb, but... And I keep forgetting Marshall Bullock. Seth! His first name is Seth. I don't know if they say it in the pilot, but it was on IMDb. So they we established that Wild Bill and Calamity Jane are also on their way to Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Then we get to Deadwood, and there's some business establishing. It's a pretty... It does feel quite lawless and wild there. They're constantly showing dudes punching each other. And in the street. People and people like... just, like, selling shit by shouting about it. And it's very... You know, there's just... A lot of the businesses are just, like, intense, right? Um, <laughs> intense? It's, you guys, these businesses are intense! They're also quite intense! People are getting shot! It's very oh. serious. <laughs> anyway, uh, you got, you got like, just a booth uh-huh. out in the street 
with whiskey shots on a sign, you know, <laughs> 10 cents or whatever. Uh, there's, it, it looked like a lemonade stand. It was adorable. Then we establish, uh, uh, Bullock and, uh, Saul. Saul are getting, they, they find themselves a tent to rent or whatever to start selling their mm-hmm. wares so that they can get enough money maybe for a permanent building. I assume that's how it works. Uh, and honestly, it's all a bit of a blur, but we also eventually pretty soon. Oh, that's when we go to the gym. Yeah. Because they say you got to pay your rent for this spot to Al Swearingen. He's at the gym. And we go there to the gem saloon and and hotel. Is it a hotel? Is 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 a whorehouse. But the 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 the. I don't know if it's actually connected. There's a lot of like kind of hazy geography in this episode. Yeah. Because uh, Mr. Fancy Pants, who we'll get to in a minute, is staying in a hotel that Swearingen owns. But I'm not clear on if it's next yeah. door. Or... I wasn't sure if it was yeah. the same or if it was another hotel. It's probably also the same building. But anyway, we go there. We meet elsewhere. Engine, who's kind of he's clearly the boss of this town. He runs everything. Everything. Like the they tell him that some guys are opening a hardware store, and you can see him filing that information. Like he's already starting a file on these guys, a mental yeah. file. Yeah. He's already like, hmm, hardware, interesting. Yeah, and also he immediately has to deal with a problem. There's a gunshot. Uh, one of his working girls shot the man she was with because he was beating her. And the guy has a... He's shot through the head, but he's still, like, muttering. He's still alive. Yeah. They call for a doctor. The doctor shows up. Brad Dourif. Creepy, creepy doctor who's, like... He goes over to the guy and he's, like kind of looking at him and he's 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 just like shh, shh, shh and then the guy fades away yeah. and he goes i would love to know how he managed to live for 20 minutes you know he's immediately like he's only interested in figuring out yeah and he sticks a sticks a pokey thing through the guy's brain the guy who was with him is like doc can we just yeah. get him get him out of here so he says something about like i think he wants to take him to his he wants to do like an autopsy. Yeah, basically to, to like poke at his brain. So he's he's clearly um, has an interest in research, as it were. Uh, but yeah, he's creepy as hell. Yeah. And uh, there's some trouble with uh, Swearingen kind of like gives the prostitute whose name is Trixie trouble mm-hmm. about this business. Of... I didn't quite follow their conversation where he like put it. He threw her down and put his foot on her neck. He was going to break one of her fingers and then he didn't. Yeah, it was just like not clear on why. He was if he was doing it to punish her for acting out or whatever. I it, uh, there were a lot of scenes in this movie. There's a lot of dial movie. Felt very cinematic. Yeah. There are a lot there's a lot of dialogue that's hard to follow. Because it's oh the, the dialogue is delivered in a very naturalistic way like you were saying. Not and it's just not the expo log. And it's it, people deliver it in a very natural way. Yeah. Like, He's not like You've been working for me for seven years. Yeah. And I've never had trouble like this with you before. Yeah. You know, there's nothing or, like that. Or you got here six months ago and you've been nothing but trouble. Yeah. yeah. It, it was delivered delivered and written more naturalistic than that, which unfortunately does make it harder to follow. Right. Also, a lot of slang and a lot of just old, you know, uh, just a lot of Western sort of 
I'm kind of perpetually drunk. Half the people in this sound. I haven't eaten a vegetable in seven years. I I know you you probably won't get this reference, Sarah, but half the people in this sound like Tom Hardy from The Revenant, which <laughs> I haven't. Seen I know it's a very specific reference, yeah. but it is very spot on. That makes sense uh, with what I know of that movie. But yeah, I I was saying when we were talking yeah. earlier, I was saying. The, something sounded wrong about the the fancy Mr. Fancy Pants, uh-huh. the dude who we'll get to in a moment. I was like, there's some something feels wrong about the way he talks. But I he's supposed to be fancy. They refer to him as being from New York and everything. And I was like, I think it's just that he his voice sounds clear. <laughs> I got a bunch of shit in his throat, which everyone else does. <laughs> and they just all sound like they've just been living on like bacon and whiskey for you know a year or something like that and just like sleeping outside and just like yeah they're not healthy no <laughs> everybody like that is yeah. the point so there's a lot of dialogue it's hard to follow but we establish at least that Trixie is a bit of a troublemaker and uh Swearingen does show her a little bit of mercy I mean he he certainly doesn't show a lot of mercy to anybody else based on what happens at the end of the episode um I think that that really colors my view of the scene between Swearingen and Trixie. Yeah, it's. I mean, should we just? Just, should I think we talk, we can just, let's say just talk like, about it now. It, there's a scene at the very end where she just she comes into his room. He takes her gun that she shot the guy with. She acquires another gun later in the episode. Uh huh. Surreptitiously sneaks yeah. it into her corset. Then she shows up. Swearingen's in bed. Uh huh. She knocks on his door. Walks in. Puts the gun on his dresser, takes off her clothes, and just climbs in bed with him. And just lays her head down on his chest. She yeah. says, it's not like, I'm here to seduce you or something. Which And he says nothing. He doesn't. He barely reacts to this. So, yeah, now we don't really know what their relationship is. It implies to me that their relationship is a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Like. She's not just a troublemaking whore in his hotel. Yeah. I there's, mean, she... there's clearly something else going on. In their relationship. There is also the fact that a, a working girl or a prostitute sex... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best not to say something I like know. belittling to um, these sex Apologies to anyone who's listening who is a sex worker or something. It's it's so easy to just use the the crude terms, but... Uh, so I'm doing my... I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing my best here. But it to have... Uh, to have staff that far from civilization at that time, they were incredibly valuable. It's something that you don't really think about, but just like even just traveling, just wanting to travel to Deadwood, it was not a 100% guarantee you'd arrive there alive. Yeah. You maybe had like an 8 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 chance of getting there. So, you know, he does have a vested interest in sort of keeping them alive and not just killing everyone that just well, pleases yeah. him. And and not just alive, but also in shape to work, frankly. And she says something about, like, the, the guy that she had killed, like, he was out of money. He'd gone bust. He, yeah. was, he was out of money, so it wasn't like they were going to get more money out of him somehow. Yeah. Uh, sorry, there's just, there's a lot of, like, historical things about that time that I don't know why that, seeing yeah. it portrayed in this, it's like, I'm thinking about some of these things and being like, Damn. Yeah. But anyway, there's this real com- uh, convoluted and confusing scene 
where I think I figured out finally in the end, everything was established, that Swearingen was trying to pull a scam of sorts mm -hmm. on this New York fella. Mm -hmm. His, uh, um, uh, Swearingen sent a right-hand man guy who we established. He looked familiar, and he was on leverage, but I don't think that's what I was recognizing him from. I, what was that guy's name? Tom Nuttle. Tom Nuttle, thank you. I'm sure people who've seen the whole show are like, these characters are important, you have to know their names. But the point is, he comes in and says, oh, that New York dude is down there with, with drinking whiskey. And Swearingen's like, is he drinking it or sipping it? And he, he kind of smirks, and he's like, he's sipping it. <laughs> what kind of asshole sips whiskey? <laughs> but anyway, we meet this guy, and he's very well-dressed and well-groomed. He's got a nice little mustache, mm -hmm. a little black mustache. And his hair is all slicked back and everything. And he's talking to Swearingen like they've already established things, and they're it's like they're in cahoots at first. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pull something over on this other guy who he's going to buy this claim from. Yes. But then this other guy, oh, the guy who, oh yeah, it is, it is, I think the same, no, I think it's a different, a different hotel then, because that's where the uh, William Sanderson right. works. Who also is in Swearingen's pocket. Yeah, yeah. So there's this other guy who's like the, the, the front desk clerk or whatever at, at the, at the hotel, which is either established, attached to the gem or not. But it's William Sanderson from uh, Blade Runner I mean, and, yeah. and many, many other things. But I immediately went, oh, it's a guy from Blade Runner. So he comes in, and, and then he's also doing a thing. Anyway, uh -huh. basically, it's this whole mess between Swearingen, the dude, this incredibly drunk Irish guy who's trying to sell the claim, and then this very meek fellow, played William Sanderson. And, and it's hard to follow what's happening, but what we figure out in the end is that Swearingen, the Irish guy, and Swearingen's meek lackey, the three of them were in cahoots to rip off the rich New Yorker. They start a they start a fake betting war to drive yeah. the price up. Yes. And the New Yorker ends up spending every single dollar he has to yeah. buy the claim. Yes. Which is we got some con artistry like, it, right up there. <laughs> honestly, it was confusing because it yeah. didn't seem nothing that anybody was doing seemed natural. And so I was like, I can't tell who's conning who at this moment. I think part of why the the it didn't seem natural what the um, the New Yorker was doing was because he is just he seems unnatural in that setting. Yes, yes he feels he is very out of so sorts. fish out of water. Yeah, and also because he was absolutely convinced that that claim was incredibly valuable, worth way more than what he initially offered, yes. and. I'm assuming it's going to turn out that Swearingen also fixed that to make it seem more valuable. They, yes. They planted the gold or whatever, yes. I'm assuming. Because um, it seems like something we do. Uh, anyway, then, let's see. Oh, then the uh, the guy stumbles into town, I think. Mm -hmm. the, this Not stumbles. This guy rides into town looking real disheveled. And says that he saw something horrible outside of town. Yeah. Um. He saw a, a whole family, a wagon, uh, which we met this family earlier as they were leaving. Clammy Jane asks them for directions or something, and they're like, we're leaving. We're going back to Minnesota. Minnesota. And he's like, oh, I saw the whole family. They're, they're killed by, by Indians. You know, they were slaughtered, pieces everywhere. You know, man and his wife, two children, and... Basically, Bullock immediately is like, 
wow, I guess you could use a drink. And it's just, it's immediately obvious that he's like not sold on this guy's story. There's something doesn't feel right about his story. Yeah. So they take him to the another bar, which I think was basically a tent. Yeah. But it's the, it's the only other bar we've seen other than the gem, right? Mm-hmm. And, oh, people are also playing Pharaoh there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but while the Hagark is there playing cards. And they take him in there, and then they start kind of poking at him. And I can't remember who. Somebody mentions that that family had three children. And he said two. Yeah. And the guy's like, oh, well, it might have been three. There was a, body parts everywhere. I uh, I can't be sure. And they're like, well, if there's a third child, they, that child might still be alive. We should go out there and look look for that child. And the guy's like, uh, 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 starts kind of like balking. Uh-huh. And then they, basically they, the guy doesn't want anybody else to know what, what happened. Goaded by Marshall, former Marshall Bullock mm-hmm. and Saul, a bunch of, uh, a sort of a posse ends up coalescing around them. And they get the man to ride out and yeah. show them where. Very notably, because while Bill Hickok walks up, and we've established that he is, he's a celebrity, you know? Yeah. People are recognizing him. Oh, there's a great little moment with <laughs> Garrett Dillahunt, who is just, man, he just disappears into into a role. And yet, I was like, as soon as you pointed it, I guess I don't know if I would have recognized him, but you said, isn't that, that that's the guy from Looper? Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, when, as soon as we see him. But he does this whole thing where he's like, I'm just going to say something. When Wild Bill Hickok walks into the bar and the two guys next to him, he's like, I'm just going to say something. And once I've said it, I will say no more on the subject and I will be completely quiet. And I will say no more. And there will be no more discussion once I've said this one thing which I have to say, which is that that's Wild Bill Hickok and I'm not impressed. <laughs> and you could tell other people that I said that and that is the only thing I said on the matter. Yeah, it's just delightful. There's a bit with the, with the two of them playing Pharaoh, which... I didn't they're, quite they're follow. Playing, they're playing poker. They're not oh, playing excuse Pharaoh. Me. Is it, they, they mentioned Pharaoh several times. Yes. Everyone All right, is, they're playing poker. In fairness, everyone's talking about Pharaoh, but it, it is important to note for historical reasons that Bill was playing poker. Oh, historical reasons. Historical reasons. All right. Well, at any rate, there's a bit of a moment where the, they, they're playing poker. Anyway. A posse is formed. Well, the Hickok walks up and says take us. And the guy kind of was like, I can't say no to a celebrity. So they all ride out. They find the place. And I mean, it is awful. The family has been slaughtered. Yeah. And it's terrifying. There's wolves eating the dead bodies. It's horrible. But uh, Bullock manages to find the third child, who seems relatively unharmed, Mm -hmm. but is also possibly unconscious. Yes. So then they ride back Calamity Jane does a thing where she goes into... Oh, there's a whole thing where this guy shows up at the bar at the gym and announces that there's been a... There's been there's some, some Sioux Indians slaughtered the family and we got a posse, whatever. Swearingen basically is like, I gotta, I gotta smooth this over because this is going to be bad for business because nobody's going to be drinking and whoring and gambling when they're worried, of, you know, they're running off, you know. Yeah. So he runs down there and makes this... No, it runs down there. He goes downstairs to the saloon and does this really rousing speech where he's like, we should definitely do something about these, this slaughter tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow morning with a clear head, we should set out. Make a plan. Tonight, everyone, you know, really think about what you're going to do. Oh, also, uh, next round's on the house 
and pussy's half off in the next 15 minutes or something. You know, he he basically gets everybody back in the spirit of things and gets them spending money again in a very smooth speech that makes it sound like he's doing this because this is the right thing to do and he's stopping people from making any bad yeah, decisions. Yeah, it was the, I think it was kind of the first, like, where you really see how manipulative and sort of, like, psychologically powerful this character is because he does this whole thing about we'll do something in the morning and then he says and the next round's on me yeah and oh those people bless their souls yeah oh and pussy's half price the next 15 minutes it's yeah. like he's all over the map yeah in a way that if you're not paying attention to what he's doing you won't see what he's doing but it's Obviously, to us, like, we're watching from a, the distance of being viewers. Like, yeah. it's very obvious. But clearly to the people around him, they don't see what he's doing. How, how he's being, how he's manipulating them. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, like, he's set up as such a powerful figure. Like, it, it, he's a frighteningly powerful figure in this town. And I, you don't really see it until that moment. Like, you know, he's kind of like a mob boss kind of guy mm-hmm. until that moment where he's just, there's like 200 people there. Yeah. And he just completely wraps that room around his finger. Yeah. Well, there's there's the other scene. I can't remember if that was before or after. It's all mm-hmm. out of order. There's another scene where, oh, the, where they establish what they just did with the with the rich New York dude. Yes. Um, where the Irish guy... Basically, Swearingen isn't pleased because he went off script. Mm-hmm. He was the one who went off script to drive up to reopen the bidding, as it were, yes. to drive that guy up to twenty thousand. I think is what they end up is the final bid or whatever. And Swearingen's not pleased, and he's like, "Oh, come on! I just I felt that he had more in him. It was just a gut thing. Come on, it worked out." The Swearingen's like, "You risked a a good a good thing that we had." Well, and then after Tom, that's the Irish guy. Yeah. No. No, Tom is the... Tom is the right-hand man. Uh, uh, Driscoll? Yeah, Driscoll. After Driscoll leaves, there's kind of this conversation between Swearingen and Tom about it. And the thing is, the Swearingen knew that uh, rich New York guy only had 20000 That was it. Mm-hmm. And he also knows that he's... Uh, trust fund baby of some kind that he's mm-hmm. getting money from his parents, which we saw the guy talking to his wife and saying, mm-hmm. "I spent all our twenty thousand and she goes, "Oh no, and he goes, "I'll just have to ask my parents for more money he and, he does say it in very much of a like, well, unfortunately, I suppose I'll have to ask father for more money and yeah. she goes, "Well, I suppose that was inevitable, so he definitely doesn't say it like I'll just ask for more yeah. money. He's nonplussed about it, probably his parents are nonplussed about him tr- going off to the wild west to prospect for gold and the thing is is i think swearing plan was to string him along a little bit longer yeah and the problem is is he's completely cleaned the guy out now yeah and now he's gonna have to kind of improvise on the fly yeah so he's a, you know it's the kind of thing where he's thinking 10 steps ahead he's he not... had he had a bigger plan yes and the the drunk irish guy driscoll was just trying to get more money out of the moment yes so yeah it's a, and, and then he just sort of offhandedly says they're kind of talking, and there's a little bit of joking going on. And then Swearingen says to Tom, Driscoll will have to be taken care of. And Tom's like, no joking? Like, wait, we're not uh, we're not having fun right now? Like, for real? Okay. And, yeah, he ends up killing him at the before the end of the episode. Oh, yeah, we forgot to mention that they made that guy disappear. You know, when they brought the doc in, Doc Cochran, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Right, Brad Dourif. 
it, they brought him in to kind of take a look at the guy and then they say call the Chinaman or something like mm-hmm. that and basically there's a Chinese guy who keeps pigs or whatever and they apparently whenever uh, Swearingen wants to get rid of somebody Wu is Woo. the guy's yeah. name yeah anyway so uh, that's fun Swearingen's a bastard presumably the Irishman will also go to the pigs yeah he is a bastard before we leave the saloon and get on to sort of the climax of the episode I just wanted to pause on the fact that Calamity Jane somewhat intoxicated wanders in oh right yeah hears that a family got killed by Indians or somebody and is immediately like let's ride out there right now people could be hurt we yeah. gotta go and everyone's like no we're going in the morning Al said and she's like, like in the morning what's your hurry <laughs> And then as she leaves, she's like, I don't drink while I'm the only one with balls. Yeah. <laughs> but they all just think it's funny, you know. Yeah. They're all just like hooping and hollering after and everything. But she rides out after them. So she meets them while they're on their way back mm-hmm. with the child. Yes. And there's this interesting moment where it's just silent. Nobody speaks. But she and Bill seem to be communicating through their eyes or whatever. And they give her the child, even though... I- <laughs> With question the wisdom of that. I don't know that she has any more particular... Uh, she doesn't seem to have any more particular child-rearing skills than any of them, but she does seem to soften at the sight of the child and seems very protective of the child. When they finally bring the child to the uh, to Doc Cochran, yeah. she's immediately like, don't, don't leave it on me! I'm, I'm, I'm watching that child! She's a very hard case. Yeah. Who the only other time we've seen her soften in the episode is previous to her and this girl that they've just found is when she sees the family earlier and she's kind of looking at the kids and smiling at the kids like kind of wistfully. Yeah, honestly, I didn't read that in the scene when it happened, mm-hmm. but you're right now in retrospect, they were clearly setting up for her to realize it was the same child she saw earlier and that's part of why she's so protective of the kid. Now, I don't know very much about the historical Calamity Jane. I saw like yeah. the stage play at some point as a kid with my family. And I mostly remember that because my sister was very taken with it. And like basically was Calamity Jane for about a month when we yeah. were children. But I believe that she has like, there's a lot of trauma in her origin like where she comes from or whatever Mm -hmm. that has led her to the place of being this like hard drinking hard cussing yeah figure yeah uh which you know could be interesting for dramatic exploration as the series goes forward but just just what we're given in this pilot it's such a rich character for those couple of moments where she does sort of open up a little bit or sort of soften I was actually going to say, I was expecting you to say, rather, that the other, other time we saw her soften was when she's talking to Bill. She smiles at him uh, in a different way than she smiles at any other time in the show, which I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be sort of a protectiveness or a fondness or if she's like, ha- has a crush on him or is in love with him or whatever. But she hates his, like, handler guy. Yeah. she his ha- name was. There's very much a Brian of Tarth, uh, uh, Renly Brian? Brain of Tarth, Renly Baratheon, kind of. It's not Brienne? Uh, they, people say both in the actual show. Uh, but anyway, like, it's... Hey, I've only ever heard people say yeah. Brienne, so I was like, wait, what are, you, what are you making up right now? Uh, 
But it, it's like a very much like her and uh, Renly relationship where it's it's. I, I'm just so. kind of getting like uh, yeah, I I know you're sorry. I'm not a GOT person. But it, you know, for my fellow HBO GOT peeps, I got that same vibe. So especially in in contrast to how she feels about his handler, who she mm-hmm. seems to hate. He says at one point, like, God, I wish I knew whatever I ever did to get on that woman's bad side. Yeah. But she's she's very soft and and um fond. She's clearly very fond of Bill, if nothing else. Very protective as well. Yeah, and protective of him. So she's the one who brings the guy uh, the child. Anyway, the guy who originally wrote in and told them about this, who's been acting real squirrely ever since I started to ask questions, is now off to the side on his horse. And he's like, well, I guess I did my duty, and now I'll just be on my way. And Bullock gets off his horse and is like, starts kind of asking questions. says, you were part of a posse of highwaymen mm-hmm. who uh, killed that family. And basically, he kind of ekes that out. And the guy's like, what? No, it was totally Indians. And he's like, nope. They were, first of all, there was way too much destruction. And too many goods were left behind. Whoever did that was looking for money. Yeah. So he immediately is like, nah, you're not pinning this on, you know, Native Americans. He's like, well, well, then why would I come here if I was a thief? And he's like, probably the rest of your band of thieves, you know, went to ground, but you just had to have some pussy. So Bill, Bill Hickok says that. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, Bill walks up too, and the two of them are standing there. He's saying, get off your horse. Bullock does the thing where he flips his coat back to show his gun, and it's got his hand on his gun. He's like, we're doing this. Right before Bill uh, walks up to join him, he says to Saul, how's your friend there with a gun? Saul looks at Wild Bill Hickok and goes, I do not feel qualified to say. <laughs> this is a great moment. So then the two of them walk are standing there, Wild Bill Hickok and our our hero, I guess? I kind of feel like Bullock is sort of the protagonist here of the show. He's the face on the DVD box. Okay. Uh, he's, you know, the two of them standing there. Yeah. Telling this guy, get off your horse now. And the guy's like, whoa, whoa, ah, whoa, uh. and then basically he reaches for his gun and Hickok and Bullock, Hickok and Bullock, both draw and shoot. Guy, you know, falls, poor horse falls over too. I think the horse was fine though. Everyone's very important to know. The horse, the horse was, was okay. Uh, and then the guy's clearly dead. And then while Bill Hickok says, oh, they had a conversation earlier, the two of them about Formerly being marshals. Yes. Yeah. He said something about, uh, I think uh, Bullock says, you were a marshal and something. And he says, yeah, what about you? He doesn't even say. He just knows right away. Yeah. This guy. He says Montana. So then he uh, he turns to him at the end after they've shot this guy. While Bill Hickok says, was that you or me, Montana? And Bullock says, my money's on you. It's a nice little moment between the two of them right there at the end. And... Yeah, they're just like these kind of stone cold, like la- laconic, classic Western. Laconic ass cocksuckers. <laughs> laconic suckers, as 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 you laconic might have suckers, it. Yeah, these yeah, they're just standing there. And what I loved about it is we've got these two men standing, and standing there as kind of as equals. Yeah. Even the one is some random. I mean. He's a former Marshall hardware store owner who just wandered into this story. And then Wild Bill Hickok, a famous figure mm-hmm. of American legend, you know, like 
And just the way, and the fact that, you know, we've been given this established that while Bill certainly is not above using his celebrity sometimes to mm-hmm. sway the situation, it's not to get things out of people. He does it to, you know, get the posse going, you know, to get the, convince that guy to lead the posse. Because he's like, I'm not going back out there. I could get killed. So he uses his powers for good, I guess, is what we're kind of getting, at least from the first episode. And that he says, which, you know, was that you or me? So it seems like a generous thing to say yeah. when he's supposed to be, you know, the fastest draw in the West or whatever. And I also like that because it, neither man jumps to take credit for it either. Yeah. They're yeah. both like, I... It could have been either one of us. Yeah, it's... We're in this together, buddy. It's the last, I guess, major thing that I want to note about this altercation is that every major character that we've been introduced to thus far is present. So this whole thing is witnessed by... Mr. New York Fancy Man, who has just oh. stepped out in his brand new, I'm a gold prospector. Outfit with a very clean metal pan ready for painted gold and like some sort of contraption he's holding. He just, it's adorable. He's wearing like white. It's just, he looks so clean compared to everyone else. And he's about to go off prospecting. His wife is watching from their hotel room. Swearingen is watching from his room. Like everybody witnesses this mm-hmm. whole thing go down. Which... I kind of feel like this is actually the inciting incident. Like, the fallout from this moment is going to have repercussions for the rest of the season. That would make, yeah, that certainly makes sense. I mean, you roll into town just trying to start a hardware store, and then everybody witnesses you, you know, taking down a a, a thief, a a brigand, Mm -hmm. alongside Wild Bill Hickok. That's going to change your status in the town from just a random, you know, hardware store owner. So, yeah, it's, I can see this definitely being something that this is what kind of affects a lot of the show, rather than just being the resolution of the story, which we see that a lot in pilots where they're setting up the universe, but they also want there to be a bit of a story. If it's a procedural, they want a mystery to be solved. And the solution of the, or the, the resolution of the story is not necessarily something that will kick off the rest of the show. Yeah. It's a little bit just resolving its own little story. I would also like to point out that this pilot is almost the opposite of what I look for in a pilot that I really like in some ways. Mm. Because I don't feel like the story of this pilot has a beginning, middle, and end. I feel like this is all just beginning But not in a way where it's saying, oh, there'll be other stuff that's interesting later. Like, what happens is interesting. And I feel like I'm learning about these characters through their actions. Like, they're all very well written, well acted. The world looks incredible. And yet there's no resolution to anything. Nothing is resolved. You know, no, there's no completion of a character arc. No one wants something at the beginning of it that they either don't get or get by the end. Yeah. And yet... I find it very compelling, and I, I think that has a lot to do with the specifically the writing of the characters. They just everything feels so lived in the characters, yes. the world, the, the clothes, the clothes. <laughs> and on that note, and on that note, our first segment. Where did the money go? I feel like this is different from your average network show. I don't know how the HBO sausage is made. But I feel like it's possible that it's a little bit different 
from your average, we made a pilot and then we shopped it around, you know, like, it seems like with HBO, they have a certain level of like money, moneyed quality that they Mm -hmm. want to be consistent. So it, it just, it, it did not feel like there was, I don't know, it just felt like it was a very, it's, it's, it's a very cinematic thing kind of from word one. Yeah, I I know that at least from looking at the behind the scenes stuff on on Game of Thrones and Carnival, which mm-hmm. was a, a show that was Carnival. It, it's pronounced it's Carnival. Carnival. I know, but it is spelled. They put that e Carnival. on the end. Okay. They did. They shouldn't have done it if they didn't want people to say Carnival. Anyway. Uh, but it's it's like they would budget for an entire season. Mm-hmm. So it's not like like a lot of shows. I feel like it's like million an episode or something like that. Yeah. And this was, you know, you know, ten million a season, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And so, I mean, where did the money go? They built that whole town. Like, yeah. Like it's. It, I guess. Yeah. That's why it's hard to say where did the money go. I mean, they had to build an entire town. I mean, I technically some of it could have been pre-existing, but I'm assuming not really. All of the costumes. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a period show, but it felt a little bit world buildy as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you did say you dropped uh, the information pre-recording that some of this is based on historical events. So was Deadwood a real town? Yes, okay. I think. I didn't even know if it was. You know how there are those like sort of pop history books about a very specific event mm-hmm. or sort of period or or little miniature era. I just read one called Empire of the Summer Moon that's all about the Comanches in Texas or Gangs of New York is another book like that. I believe there's a book like that specifically about this town of Deadwood and sort of how it rose and fell and the gold rush there and there were all these colorful characters that came through there at this one particular kind of couple of years period Mm -hmm. and i think that book was sort of the inspiration jumping off point for this okay show because especially at first before i knew al swearingen was a real person when it was just as far as i knew clowny jane and wild bill hickok that were Mm -hmm. real people i was thinking oh so we've got this like they've made up this town and they're going what if these famous people had come to this fake town. But, okay, yeah. so it was a real town. So a certain amount of just the events of the show are going to be based on history. Indeed. A certain amount. A <laughs> We've certain. certainly established that there will be some historical fiction-y business going on. No, they actually, in the uh, the 1876 census, they actually went out and asked every single person, how often per day do you say cocksucker? <laughs> And so the show is totally historically accurate. Completely accurate. Yeah. All of the dialogue is taken from journals written by people who lived in Deadwood. Absolutely. Anywho, moving on to our next segment. Cliffs and Chips. So this is a segment where we talk about predictions for the future. In particular, any ideas we have for the first season cliffhanger. That's the cliffs part. And if we have any uh, ships, i.e. relationships, we would like to see played out, particularly the romantic varieties. For this particular show, unfortunately, there's, uh, I feel like there's not a lot uh, to do in the ships department, except that, you know, I love an underdog. So part of me who believes that Calamity Jane isn't just protective of, of Bill, she's in love with him. I just want her to have everything she wants because she's a 
strange broken woman and I just want her to be happy. But, uh, you know, uh, there's a history that they have to hew to. So uh, I don't know if maybe they hooked up in historical truth. I don't know anything about these people. I haven't read a lot about the West. Other than that, the only relationships we really see are Trixie and Swearingen have some kind of complicated shit going on. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the dude, the New York dude and his wife, just seem to be something not totally straightforward there. When he's getting ready to set out for his first day of prospecting, twice he attempts to clear his throat in hopes that she'll wake up so he can like say goodbye to her or something. And we see that she opens her eyes, and when she sees he's turning back to look at her, she closes them again. Yeah. So he tries to get her attention, but he doesn't quite want to wake her up. Mm-hmm. So there's some, there's definitely a tenseness of something. It's the second he leaves the room, she opens her eyes and then looks out the window yeah. later. So it, there's definitely going to be something interesting in their relationship. But it's, they, as far as I can tell, they're married, so there's nothing to, to ship there in the traditional use of the term. Yeah. I, I don't have any ships uh, in particular. I, I mean, it would be awesome if, like, there ends up being this this wild, sweeping, epic gay romance between somebody and somebody, but... You can't even think of someone that you want to have to secretly... I mean, Saul and, and Seth. Yeah, right? Bullock, they're, Bullock they're, and Star. They're partners. Yeah, they keep saying my partner, partners. and I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. Tumblr would have a field day with this. Honestly, the first time he said me and my partner, I thought, my, my brain interpreted it as, oh, so he and like his wife and their kids are going to go out there, right. and then I went, oh, business partner, right. People didn't use partner in that way back then. Sarah, you dumb 2019 brain. <laughs> Even jokingly being like, I, I, I don't ship them. You know, they do seem to have a nice friendship, though. In, in terms of cliffs, as far as big events that are coming, I happen to know a particular historical event is is very imminent. And if you are familiar with the characters, the historical figures that we've been talking about, you Which know... Which I am not, so no spoilers, please. It's still a spoiler, even if it's history, if I don't know about it. We've established this is the rule. Uh... That being said, I think what I am most keen to see, and this is something that I think will happen repeatedly, is Swearingen's power being tested. Like, I want him to be severely tested. Oh, yeah. Me too. Definitely. He has that level of control, it seems, over basically the whole town. Yeah. That is interesting because he's not depicted as being, like, really crude and evil. Mm -hmm. He's clearly not a good guy. He very casually, you know, instructs his dude to kill Driscoll, you know, and he's he's clearly not a nice guy, but... He's not his, senseless in his violence. Yeah, his violence is very calculated, yeah. and which makes him, I guess, just a more interesting person than mm-hmm. if he was just like, I am a cartoon villain twirling my mustache and being cruel to women and punching Irishmen in the face. Yeah. It makes him a more interesting, complex character to, to watch, even though he, he's not a nice person. You don't mm-hmm. like him. Um, I would like to see that, and I kind of want Bullock to be the one to do it. You have a conflict being set up where someone who is the personification of law and order, Seth Bullock. Former Marshall. Arriving in 
a lawless place where the closest thing to law is a criminal overlord. Yeah. I mean, I'd really like to see a first season cliffhanger where it turns out that uh, Calamity Jane was a spy for the U.S. government the whole time and uh, Al Swearengen's an alien. Wow. Sorry. You just just wrote a better show. (laughs) We used to do really funny cliffhanger predictions and we stopped. We started being serious about it and I was... That was my attempt to be funny at it. Uh, I Which, don't know if it really worked. But. Well, that's it's an interesting point that like we're evaluating the show very seriously because, you know, I, I feel like so much of the zeitgeist around the show is that it's this very like high level drama with mm-hmm. a capital D, and yet like I found myself laughing quite a bit. Like there's something very droll yeah. and. You know, we we used the word laconic earlier. There's something very like dry. There's a very dry humor to the show. And, yeah, and it's for very sure. deadpan. <laughs> yeah. I, I, dead, like dead wood and pan panning for gold is funny. Sorry. I just <laughs> I was not <laughs> expecting it to be this funny. Yeah. Like, and yet it feels naturalistic. I, I don't feel like I'm watching a comedy. I just feel like I'm watching people. Who are occasionally funny yeah. in the things that they say and do. Yeah. I think that's all we have to say about cliffhangers, so let's move on to... What will this show be? This is a segment where we talk about what we think kind of the day-to-day vibe of the show will be, because sometimes the pilot sets up a very different sort of format in a show. Sometimes episode two, within seconds, you get that there's a very different tone to it. I feel like this show is going to be fairly consistent, though. Yeah, this is one... I mean, they shot the whole thing back to back. You know, it was from day one, I think they had they knew where this was going. Yeah, and I mean, I'm assuming that, like I said, I don't really know how the HBO system works, but I'm assuming it's a little more like we're doing this and it starts. They don't shoot the pilot and then shop it around, and then if it gets picked up, they have to go back and try to recreate you know, whatever was happening in the pilot, you know. I think this is a little more like they set out, we are making a thing. Mm-hmm. It's I. It's it's a bit cliche at this point in the streaming and binging era to refer to a, move, a, a TV show as a very long movie in one hour chunks. But I do get the feel like this show is going to be more like that than most shows. Definitely. Especially at the time. Because this was certainly pre- streaming and pre-marathoning uh, shows back in, in 2004. I mean, yeah, can you imagine, like, this is like a network show? Al Swearingen runs a brothel. He's got to deal with all kinds of trouble. <laughs> all sorts of wacky characters walk through his doors. Yeah, this is not that. I mean, you did say Stephen Tobolowski was going to show up on this oh show God. at some point. I can't wait! Also, uh... I saw like a, a a thumbnail of an episode, and uh, Ricky Jay apparently shows up in this. That's right. Oh my god. Oh. Okay, but we we we're we're getting ahead of ourselves here, or are we? Is it time to move on to our next segment? I think so. It's that guy. This is the segment where we address people in the show who we may have recognized, and what we know them from, or whether we knew them from anything. Every now and then, you see someone and go, "Oh, I know that guy." Check IMDb. Nothing. In this case, good lord, practically every other person. It's I mean, wall-to-wall character actors. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, Timothy Oliphant is right there at the top of it, who, I don't know about all y'all, but the two roles that really stick out for me 
for him are go. I don't know if you saw that movie. Like a mid-late 90s one of those movies it's like it takes place all in one evening and it's a it's a bunch of different storylines running oh, into each like other. A... He's a drug dealer. I think uh Katie Holmes. Holmes. Yeah, Katie Holmes is like like a college student who kind of ends up getting wrapped up in some crazy adventure where she meets him and he's a drug dealer and there's oh, it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's a very it's an extremely 90s film, but also he is in the movie The Broken Hearts Club, which is this little indie movie that just I feel like I've never run into anybody else who's ever seen it, but uh Timothy Oliphant plays a delightful uh you know, gay photographer from North Hollywood who's, you know, the whole movie is about, you know, him and his, his gay friends and them kind of questioning, like, how being gay sort of takes over their personalities and how they're portrayed in media and stuff. And it's, it's really good, you guys. It's kind of dumb, but it's really good. Anyway, that is a far cry from Marshall Bullock. So that was surreal for me. It's it's funny because I have almost the exact opposite experience of Timothy Oliphant in this. I this was the first thing I ever saw him in when I watched the pilot years ago, and then the only other thing I'm conscious of ever having seen him in was a really shitty adaptation of the video game series Hitman, mm. in which he played Agent Forty Seven, the titular hitman. Oh, I see. So you are more used to seeing him with a gun in his hand than I am. Is what you're yeah, saying. Th- uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, his face no looks like it knows what guns is. <laughs> yeah, whereas my experience with him is more of him asking uh, a young, uh, recently out ang- Andrew Keegan, what are your um, OGTs? Obviously gay traits. Mine is a love of the Carpenters. Yeah, it's... Love this movie, you guys. I'm making it sound bad, but it's really... John Mahoney plays their, like patriarch sort of old gay dad character who's being nice to all these young gay boys and giving them a baseball team to play on. Anyway. Speaking of old dad characters, <laughs> I was, it was really interesting watching this again, having watched Fargo because. Which I have not been. David Carradine from this. Right. Plays the, the. No, no older, Keith Carradine. Keith David Carradine, Carradine is Kung Fu. Oh. Shit. Keith Carradine plays, uh, in Fargo, he plays sort of the older, retired, mentor-type sheriff character. Mm. And then in the second season of Fargo, there's a, there's like, or second or third season of Fargo, there's flashback, and someone else plays the young him, and you get to see what he's referencing when he talks about a thing he experienced and he just, he's he's got this way about him in that and in this where he's just like, he's someone who's seen some shit and mm-hmm. he's got some, he's got the miles. I don't know. There's some, there's some performers who just look like they've got the miles. Like they've, like Tommy Lee Jones is another one of those people who just, mm-hmm. like you could tell me just about anything had happened to Tommy Lee Jones in his life. And I would be like. Yeah, probably at some point that happened. You know, Tommy Lee Jones, he deserves to have a meme like that stupid Chuck Norris meme. Oh, yeah. yeah. Way more than Chuck Norris. I, I, let's start a new one, but it's like where you just come up with absurd things that Tommy Lee Jones has done without being phased. Yeah. Like, you jumped out of two airplanes? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And then, like, squinty Tommy Lee face. But the David Carradine is- has that same 
Look. Keith. Fuck! I've got two words for you, strangely. Keith Carradine. <laughs> no kung fu. So anybody else you recognize? Surf Ninja's that? reference. Hey. Who else did I recognize? Honestly, we spent a lot of time on IMDb because some people looked familiar and I couldn't place them. You know, Saul, uh, John Hawks looked very familiar, looked at his IMDb. Some people have been in so much, though, that you scroll through and you might gloss over. Um, oh, there was Brad Dourif, of course, who plays Doc Cochran, the doctor. Very creepy, weaselly sort of doctor. Appropriately, I was recognizing him from playing... Um, oh, shoot. Character name just flew out of my head. From Lord of the Rings. Ah, uh, Wormtail. Right. Is that Wormtail? Tongue. Worm tongue. Right. It's, it's a kind of an on-the-nose name for a character who says bad things. But anyway, the point is, uh, that's where we're recognizing him from, uh, mainly. The guy has been in a phenomenal amount of stuff, but I would like to say for the listeners, if you're only familiar with Brad Dourif from Lord of the Rings and Deadwood, please immediately go to IMDb and look at his profile photo. It's amazing. I will say no more. Uh, Leon Rippey, who plays Tom, uh, swearing is kind of right-hand man, looked so familiar to me. He did have a recurring role on Leverage, but that was a number of years later, and I, he looks very different. I don't think that's what I was recognizing him from. I recognized Molly Parker, who plays Mr. Fancy Man's Sleepy Wife. Mm. She was in the recent Netflix reboot of Lost in Space. She played Mom, Mrs. Robinson. You paid mom in space. Uh, mom in space. I don't remember. They changed their first name. Like, I didn't remember what their, their first names. Uh, and she was also in House of Cards. She's an amazing oh. actress. And it's kind of interesting to see her in this because this was sort of a ways back before we were all aware of her talent. Like, right. I'm really excited to see more of her in this series. Yeah. Well, and speaking of uh, Mr. Fancy Pants, the dude, as they refer to him in the yeah. episode several times, both of us thought he looked familiar, right? And I felt very much like, oh, it's driving me crazy. His eyes look so familiar. I bet you what's throwing me off is his his fancy little mustache and his slicked back hair. I'm sure I'd recognize him without the mustache, but I was wrong, friends. I wasn't recognizing him because I've never seen him without a beard. It's <laughs> Timothy Amundsen. I've only ever seen him with a big old oh, beard. So I had, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, and who people may recognize from... Galavant, I think that's the first thing yeah, I saw him in. The Evil King. And yeah, Galavant. but he's been in a bunch of things. And is also a noted Frank Turner fan, just saying. It's a fun fact. Big Frank Turner fan. Anyway, seeing him younger and with a, with with just a smart, pointy little mustache and otherwise clean-shaven and slicked-back black hair, like, he has very distinctive eyes, though, and that what what kept making me going, I, I must know this person. What's funny is I've only seen, like, two episodes of Galavant. Yeah. And I've seen pictures of him online because he's done stuff with the Work Juice mm -hmm. players and things like that that I see on the internet. But I think it's a testament to how really striking his eyes are that I felt so strongly, I must know who this person is. And I mean, we're, we're so enamored of all of these character actors, we're not even addressing the McShane in the room, which, like... Yeah. Ian McShane, I have never seen him give a bad performance He's always so committed and often so committed to really ridiculous things. I've been really enjoying his performances on American Gods as Mr. Wednesday. Yeah, oh, which I have not started watching and you just warned me might be a little too violent for me. 
Sarah's not good with violence, folks. It's not my friend. He's also great in the Kung Fu Panda movies, and uh, he had an... Um, I think he had my favorite... I can't believe you just went from American Gods to Kung Fu Panda. That was a leap. He was great in it. Woo! Uh, he had my favorite sort of small side character in Game of Thrones. He was so excellent in that show. He's just a treasure. Yeah, honestly, I was just realizing that I know his face very, very well because I've been following the American Gods show. I was following the production of it somewhat, even though I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Oh, he is the voice of uh, Mr. Babinski in Coraline. That's fun. Other than that, I, I honestly don't think I've seen him in anything. I just know him because he has a very distinctive face. And I've seen so much of the... I mean, as soon as I saw a picture of him, I went, yeah, that's Mr. Wednesday. Like, no question. I think I just, like... It's like, well, I'm going to remember that face for the rest of my life. Right. Although glancing through his IMDb, he has certainly been working. This guy has not been slacking off. Shall we move on to our final segment? Oh, you had suggested at one point a possibility of adding a favorite character segment. Oh. Where we pick our favorite character from the from this show, from this pilot. All right. Do you want to introduce that? Yeah, let's... Uh, Do you have a favorite character segment? Yeah. So... Are we ready to move on to our next segment? Yes, I think we are. And this is a new segment we're trying out, which we're going to call... A Clipper Name! We haven't come up with yet. So, who would you say is your favorite uh, character? Swearingen. Just absolutely hands down. I mean, it's hard for anybody to get a character in Edgewise when Ian McShane is on the screen, I think. He's... There's so much going on for him. I, yeah... And I think since we're both, like, so agreed on him, I would say my, like, do you have a second favorite? I'll let you go I was ahead. trying to think of, like, who yeah. would be my second favorite. The part of my brain that is focused on attractive humans is saying, Timothy Oliphant. And I'm like, shut up, that part of the brain. His character isn't that interesting. I mean, he's, it's a good character and all, but yeah. I'm like, my brain's like, Timothy Oliphant. I'm like, uh, favorite character and who you like looking at are not the same thing, you dummy. Uh... I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I guess, okay, let's put it this way. Who's the character you're most excited to find out more about? I feel like Calamity Jane. Yeah, I mean, she's... I want to see her character be developed more. I want to see more from that person. I do as well. Since you picked her, I'm going to have a little shout-out to my boy Garrett Dillahunt, because... <laughs> right, that's right! That... He's he gonna... Had... Presumably, he's gonna be a, a thing. He had so little dialogue and so little screen time and yet made such an impression. Just mm -hmm. like, I am not impressed. It's such a good moment. He's very, he's good. Yeah. He's good at, uh... He, this is the first time I've seen him play someone that's squirrely. Well, he did it very well. He did. Yeah. Well, shall we move on to our final segment? All right. Our final segment is... Final Verdict. This is where we answer the question... Did this pilot do the job of a pilot, i.e., did it make you want to watch more? And I think we're both in agreement that the it, answer is yes. It's a yes for me. It's yeah. a golden buzzer for me. <laughs> I am, it's an easy yes to watch more. There are some shows where I'm like, oh, I'm going to be watching all of this show. I'm going to hold off just a complete 
golden buzzer yes mm -hmm. because I feel like there's a there I feel a possibility that I might get nonplussed about certain aspects of the show or decide it's I don't know a little too violent for me or something because there's definitely some gross stuff there's some gross moments I had to kind of squint at but I am definitely it's an easy yes to watch at least one more episode and another one if I like that, another one if I like that. But there's shows where I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna watch this show forever. I I would be surprised if I don't end up watching since it's only three seasons. Three seasons in a movie. <laughs> Hashtag three seasons in a movie. It's, it's good enough. We should be so lucky. Yeah. I'm... Yeah, I, especially knowing that the show is over now and that it's so well regarded, and there's the movie. Yeah. I think it it would have to be something significant for me to not watch want to watch all of it but i guess i part of my brain is just holding off a possibility that i won't completely follow through on the whole show yeah and you know knowing that there is a finite amount of it that i can sit down and sort of plan out and be like this is what i you know i shall engage with this much of story mm -hmm. it makes it very attractive to me yeah in this day and age of things that have no ending until they run out of ideas yeah which is, that's not a, that's not only a symptom of, you know, today. There's plenty of shows that kept going long after they bring out sure, of ideas. But I feel like everything wants to be a limitless franchise now. And that is a model that studios are pursuing aggressively. Yeah. But I mean, back in the day, people wanted a TV show to run as long as possible because. Yes. Yeah, you know, they wanted to, that sweet, sweet syndication money. That is true. I, I guess I'm I'm mostly at the back of my mind thinking of like uh, Game of Thrones or Star Wars or the I guess it's mostly movies like Marvel yeah. where it's just like there's so much of it and they have no plans on slowing down anytime soon. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, even aside from that very real phenomenon today, yeah. there's a lot of shows that you will start watching and sometimes you're like, Good. There's 10 years of this shit? Excellent. I know I'm not going to run out. Right. I can just keep watching it. Like I started watching Midsummer Murders, and I'm like, excellent. I can keep watching until I'm done. <laughs> but, yeah, sometimes when you want to watch a show, it is daunting if there's years and years of it, yeah. and you're like, do I want the time commitment of watching all of that? Yeah, having knowing it's just three seasons and the movie, and I think knowing that it is still so well-regarded, that they made a movie more than... It, 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 more than 10 years. Yeah, more than 10 years. Nearly 15 years after the show was over. I mean, that's that says something about how much people uh, cared about it and, and still care about it. And that it, is, it has aged well. Yeah. I mean, certainly nothing... I mean, it wasn't that long ago, really. But it's certainly nothing about the show looked dated. Except in the sense that it is a period show. Yeah, but but it's it's a period show that gets the period very right. Mm -hmm. I feel like even watching Game of Thrones more recently, I feel like 10, 15 years from now, we're going to look at Game of Thrones and be like, that is so 2018. Sure. Like like hairstyles and sort of some of those kind of choices. Right. Although that, that does have the added aspect of not being based on an actual time period. True, but they are very deliberately drawing on sort of War of the Roses era Europe. Sure, but they have the they have the ability to play with whatever aspects they want to without anybody calling them on historical inaccuracy. Whereas which yes. certainly there are plenty of period shows that also then go, but yeah. what if everyone had modern hair just so nobody had to get a haircut? I 
I keep referencing Game of Thrones because it's also produced by HBO. Sure. But that is just, that's a phenomenon with, with period pieces. It's what you said, you know, it's just something like the, the modern haircuts in these period things for either because people don't want to get a haircut or they don't want to have styles. Or because styles. the show can't commit to the period and they want people, the actors, to still look attractive to modern audiences. Yeah. There's there's nothing like watching a, a historical movie, but from, you know, the 70s or the 80s or whatever, and just, like, people just have 70s or 80s hair. Like, big old feathered hair in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a historical fantasy or something. But yeah, this show definitely uh, feels like every aspect of it, they were trying to go for historical accuracy. Yeah. I don't know anything about the time period. From a very kind of layman, vague, I know as much about the Old West as your average American person does. Uh, It felt very accurate. No part of it felt, oh, like, oh, God, that's 2004. Yeah. I know more about 2004. Guys, I lived it. I know about 2004. (laughs) What I, what I don't, what I lack in knowledge of the Old West, I make up for in intimate knowledge of 2004 to 2006. And I saw none of that. Let's put it that way. Well, I think that about does it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pilot House. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pilot House Pod. Visit our website at pilothousepodcast.com or email us at pilothousepodcast at gmail.com to suggest future shows. Our podcast is entirely listener-supported, so thanks to this week's special guest star, Chris, for supporting us on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pilothouse to find out how you can become a series regular. Pilot House is a Herringbone Society production. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And uh, if you found our show because you were looking for Deadwood content, I hope this didn't disappoint and you had fun listening to us probably be wrong about a number of things about your favorite show. On that note, bye! bye. I'm tired. (laughs)